Exodus chapter 29. This is what you are to do to consecrate them, so that they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect, and from the finest wheat flour, make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast, and with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves without yeast, and brushed with olive oil. Put them in a basket, and present them in it, along with the bull and the two rams. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Take the garments, and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by a skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head, and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. Take the anointing oil, and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons, and dress them in tunics, and fasten caps on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on it. Slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar. Then take all the fat on the internal organs, the covering of the liver, and both kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its intestines outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it, and take the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces and wash the internal organs in the legs, putting them with the head and the other pieces. Then burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. Take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it, take some of its blood, and put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then splash blood against the sides of the altar, and take some of the blood on the altar, and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and their garments. Then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated. Take from this ram the fat, the fat tail, the fat on the internal organs, the covering of the liver, both kidneys with the fat on them, and the right thigh. This is the ram for the ordination. From the basket of bread made without yeast, which is before the Lord, take one round loaf, one thick loaf with olive oil mixed in, and one thin loaf. Put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons, and wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. Then take them from their hands, and burn them on the altar, along with the burnt offering, for a pleasing aroma to the Lord a food offering presented to the Lord. After you take the breast of the ram for Aaron's ordination, wave it before the Lord as a wave offering, and it will be your share. Consecrate those parts of the ordination ram that belong to Aaron and his sons, the breast that was waved and the fire that was presented. This is always to be the regular share from the Israelites for Aaron and his sons. It is the contribution that Israelites are to make to the Lord from their fellowship offerings. Aaron's sacred garments will belong to his descendants, 
so that they can be anointed and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest and comes to the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place is to wear them seven days. Take the ram for the ordination and cook the meat in the sacred place. At the entrance to the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons are to eat the meat of the ram and the bread that is in the basket. They are to eat these offerings by which atonement was made for their ordination and consecration. But no one else may eat them because they are sacred. And if any of the meat of the ordination ram or any bread is left over till morning, burn it up. It must not be eaten because it is sacred. Do for Aaron and his sons everything I have commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them. Sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. Purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy, and whatever touches it will be holy. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour, mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives, and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt, so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Having just read all of the detail of those sacrifices, who's thankful for Jesus? I am. (laughs) I know Karen is. She's not very keen on blood. You get to the end of that reading and are just struck by the enormity of everything that Jesus has done. And what a privilege for us not to have to continue to make offering after offering and sacrifice after sacrifice. But all of that does mean that it would be easy for us to underestimate the importance of the priesthood because we don't have it anymore. And we know all of these blessings that come from the Lord Jesus Christ. So you look back in the Old Covenant and think, oh, crumbs, what a hard time you had. But if we don't dig into the goodness of the priesthood, we will be the spiritually poorer. And what I want us to see this evening is how this priesthood gives the foundation for worship for all of God's Old Covenant people. In fact, in many ways... All of this, all of this tabernacle priesthood, all of these sacrifices, they are the goal, in many ways, of the Exodus. It's quite easy for us to slip into thinking that the main purpose of the Exodus was to free the Israelites. Well, that's half true. The main purpose of the Exodus was to free the Israelites so they could worship God. And this is a key part of how that happens But Exodus 29 is more than just a Jewish history lesson. And hopefully as you've been 
with us as we've seen what is so important about the tabernacle, what's so important about all of the, the implements uh, and the furniture in that, camp, in that camp and also everything that's going on with the priestly garments. All of this is preparing us to see something more of the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's some of that here too. But perhaps the particular emphasis in this chapter is that we would marvel afresh at the salvation that is ours because of him. And I hope we're going to see both of those things. We'll see how they prepare us to see the Lord Jesus, but we will also see our response to what he has done for us. So last week, if you're with us, uh, there was all of the detail of how these incredibly elaborate garments were going to be prepared. This week, the first priests put them on for the very first time. And with it comes all of that kind of ceremony and consecration that we saw with King Charles's ordination last year. So oh, there's a lot of detail here. What I want us to try and do is see four key sections um, and hopefully dig into some things as we go through. The first one I want us to see is how all of this is helping us see that the priests are prepared to serve in a solemn ritual. So verses 1 to 3 list what is going to be needed for this act of consecration. And we've seen the same kind of list for the construction of the tabernacle, the preparation of the garments. God tells his people what they're going to need, but actually those sacrifices don't come for a number of verses yet. Because before we get there, there are three steps of solemn ritual to go through. Because until you get there, Aaron and his sons aren't ready. The first one in verse 4 is that they were washed clean. <clears throat> when um, all of this actually took place, and you can read the history of this, uh, this event taking place in Leviticus 8, Moses not only calls Aaron and his sons, he also calls the entire camp of the Israelites to the entrance to the tabernacle. And they all see Aaron and his sons be washed. We're going to get to all the sacrifices that consecrate both the people and the priesthood, in a bit. But before they get there, they can't be ordained, and yes, they're wearing the garments, and they can't wear the garments unless they're ceremonially clean. So before they've even been able to put anything on, there's the visual reminder of our sin that needs to be cleaned before we can then serve. Then, verses 5 and 6, they were literally dressed to serve. Every single item that we saw last week, with the exception of the linen undergarment, is listed here. And they, they put them all on. So on go the robe, the ephod, the breastplate, uh, the turban, and the gold plate. And once clothed with all of those things, as Andy so helpfully explained for us last week, they are dressed to impress, dressed for protection, dressed for wisdom, and dressed to represent God's people. And with all of those things on, in all the significance of those things, they are then ready to be anointed and set apart to serve. As far as I could see this week, this is the very first anointing in the Bible. And as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to see many kings and priests and prophets being anointed, which might all sound very ancient and unrelatable, apart from the fact that the very same thing happened to King Charles last year. 
And I wanted to show you a picture of this, but I couldn't find one that wasn't in copyright. Um, hopefully you can remember that part of the service where they brought together the elements of a screen. It was a screen that had the big tree, if you remember, uh, with the little, they looked like leaves, but actually I realized uh, in thinking about this evening, they were the names of all the 56 countries of the Commonwealth. And behind that screen, the Archbishop poured oil from a 12th century coronation spoon, the things we choose to care about, eh? um, use that spoon to pour the oil over the king. Well, um, the king was hidden behind the screen when all of his robes were removed. That wasn't the case for Aaron and his sons. The entire camp saw as Moses poured this oil all over his head, and it was a mark that this man and his sons had been set aside by God to do this work. Now, all of those rituals, the washing, the dressing, the anointing, they set the sons apart, set Aaron apart, and then they're ready to be consecrated as the very first priests. And that's the focus for the majority of the chapter. It will be for our study this evening where secondly we see that being consecrated to serve required a costly sacrifice. Being consecrated to serve required a costly sacrifice. There's loads of detail in verses 10 to 37. We need some hooks to put some stuff on. So I want you to focus, first of all, on the three big sections of the three sacrifices. Because if you can understand what's going on with the sacrifices, you can put the other detail in as you go. So first of all, there is a sin offering. That's when the bull gets burnt. Secondly, there is a burnt offering. That's when the first ram is offered in sacrifice. And then thirdly, after the sin offering and the burnt offering, there is a wave or a fellowship offering. Different terms, same sacrifice. If you just think about those three sacrifices for a minute, you can see the progress of what God is doing for the priests. So before anyone can serve God, their sin must be dealt with. That's why the bull is killed. And having been cleansed, as it were, of their sin, they then, as priests, give all of themselves in complete devotion to serve God. That's the burnt offering. And because their sin is dealt with and they have dedicated their lives to serve God, they can then enjoy fellowship with God. Do you see the redemptive narrative that flows through those sacrifices? And there's loads of nuggets that we can dig into in each one. So we're going to look firstly at the sin offering in verses 10 to 14. And if you look, in fact, it's the case with all three offerings of the bull and the two rams. <clears throat> Aaron and his sons laid their heads on each of the animals. Now, we've not got all the detail here that we get later in the Bible about the transferring of sin. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that in a little while, we're going to get to the Day of Atonement. And on that great day, there is a massive ceremony, a key part of which, perhaps the key part of which, is that the priest lays his hands, in this case, both hands, on the lamb, and 
Aaron is told, Leviticus 16, to confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And then the goat's free. It's sent away and banished into a remote place, symbolically showing the Israelites that all of their sin that they have committed has been placed on the goat. Now the goat has run. We don't have all of that detail here. But clearly, there's a substitution going on here. This bull died in the place of Aaron and his sons. Took upon himself the punishment for their rebellion and sin so that God could spare them. And the way this blood is put on the horns of the altar and then emptied at the base of the altar is showing us symbolically that God accepts that offering. Then two things happen to the rest of the bull. Verse 13, um, the description of all of these parts, I'm sorry it's quite specific, but it's important that we see how specific it is. All of these parts are actually what in Aaron's day would be considered the best parts. So verse 13 today would be like us binning the best rump and fillets and Chateaubriand steak. And I've always understood this bit to be reminding us of the costliness of our sacrifice to God as we have our sins forgiven. And I'm quite sure that is still a key part of this narrative. But I learned this week about another aspect that I think could well also be the case. If you look at how pagan worship took place in Moses' day in the ancient Near East, these bits in verse 13 are the very bits that will be sacrificed to the false gods. No doubt for the same reason, that they were considered the most expensive. I wonder whether God is very deliberately saving them, keeping them from the idolatry of offering those parts to a pagan god and showing not only the costly nature of their sin and their sacrifice to him, but also of the enormity of the danger of idolatry. Either way, rest of the bull, verse 14, was burnt outside the camp as a sin offering. And that's the very first time in the Bible that we have a reference to something being outside the camp. As you go through the Old Testament, that description, outside the camp, that becomes synonymous with the unclean and with the defiled and with a cursed place. Why does that matter? It's because we are being prepared even now to see the love of Jesus for us. So if you have a Bible, could you turn to Hebrews 13? Hebrews chapter 13. I just want to read verses 11 to 12. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Put yourself in the shoes of Jewish hearers at the time Hebrews was written. 
for hundreds and hundreds of years. They understood that what was in the outside of the camp was unmentionably evil and was ceremonially unclean. If you went there, you were as good as cursed. And in his great love for us, that is exactly where the Son of God chose to go to be our sin offering. What is building in Exodus 29 is a picture of the depths to which the Lord Jesus Christ would go in order to take upon himself our sin that we might be forgiven. That's how much God loves sinful people like me and you. And because he loves us so much, we need to see, secondly, the importance of the second offering, the burnt offering in verses 15 to 18. If you look at verse 18, unlike the bull, every single piece of the first ram is burnt on the altar. That's what the burnt offering symbolized. It's a picture of wholehearted, all of life, obedience and devotion. It's the kind of devotion that makes a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that is what Aaron and his sons were committing to do as God's priests. And you might think, well, great, I'm glad they were devoted and keen. But actually, God requires exactly the same of us. Second passage I'd love you to turn to. Um, if you could turn to Romans 12. It's a really well-known verse. I'd love you to see it in your Bible so you went out to find it this week as you think about Exodus 29. Romans 12, just reading verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I hope that verse is familiar to all of you who are Christians and perhaps to many of you who aren't. And it's the kind of verse that we often think of as the kind of mission statement for Christian living. This is what we are supposed to do in order to live out true and proper worship. That word living sacrifice there, Paul uses the, the Greek word for sacrifice, thusian, which if you read the Greek translation of Exodus 29, is the same word for burnt offering. So when you read Romans 12, Paul wants you to grab hold of all of the meaning of the devotion and the completely all of life giving of the burnt offering and read that into Romans 12. Which means we're to hold nothing back. Uh, Jamie Dyer's not here this evening, is he? Oh, there he is. Jamie Dyer made me think of this afresh in home group a few weeks ago. Um, if you spent any time with Jamie, you'll know that his most favorite missionary is John Payton. Um, and I, Jamie, am embarrassed to say that I have not read all of Peyton's autobiography. Uh, but I have this week listened to a lovely lecture that John Piper gives of John Peyton. And I think I can now totally see why 
Payton is one of your favorite missionaries, Mr. Dyer. Um, if you don't know anything about John Payton, he lived in Scotland and from his very early 20s began an inner city ministry in Glasgow. He was phenomenally blessed by God. He'd bring in hundreds of people every day. And when he got 33, he knew that the Lord was calling him to go to the New Hebrides near Australia. And almost to a person, the Christians that he was working with thought he was nuts. Not just everybody else, but the Christians he was working with thought he was nuts. 19 years beforehand, the very first missionaries went to the New Hebrides and they were killed and eaten. Loads of Christians pushed back on him to say, what are you doing? God's blessed you with this ministry. You've seen what's happened to the people who have gone before. And he came so close to actually not going because of all of that pressure. But he was devoted to God. He'd step away from that blessed ministry despite all the opposition from Christians and go because he knew that these people on those islands had not heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. He arrived in 1858, and within four months of arriving, his wife and newborn son died. And he didn't quit. Over the course of the next four years, when he was on Tanner Island, he suffered not once or twice, but 14 times with the same fever that killed his wife. And the only reason he left was he was literally hounded off the island. He spent four years raising awareness for this group of islands and all of these thousands of people who'd never heard about God and Jesus and then returned to a different island, to Aniwa Island in 1866. Now, to put Aniwa in context, the, the natives there were cannibals who practiced infanticide and when a husband died, they killed the wife so that she could go on into the next life to care for him. Now, I'm going to assume that a good number of you don't know the detail of Peyton's life story, like I didn't. I'm not going to tell you what happens to Aniwa because it's too good. And you need to hear the story and understand the goodness of God in John Peyton's missionary experience. When you get home, Google four words, John Piper, John Payton, and you'll find the most brilliantly entitled talk that you'll read this week. Give yourself an hour this week to learn what happens to Aniwa under God because of John Payton's devotion. That's what I want you to see here. His devotion, despite what he was giving up, despite the opposition, despite the sacrifice of losing his family, despite being hounded off the island, he devoted himself to a people who had never heard. Towards the end of his life, he wrote this. Let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent. And that if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would, without one quiver of hesitation, lay it on the altar to Christ that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. 
That is what it means in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Back to Exodus 29. It's only when the sin and the burnt offering have been made that the wave offering, the fellowship offering, can be given. And if you look at this sacrifice, part of it reaffirms the, the importance of this all-of-life devotion. I think that's what's going on with the blood. So the blood that gets um, smeared on uh, the ears, the hands, the feet, I think it's a symbolic way of referring to the whole person. It's as though the priest is saying everything that they see, everything they do, and everywhere they go is devoted, is under the blood and devoted to God. But the main thing that this offering shows us is what happens because of the sin and the burnt offering. Because their sin had been dealt with, because they dedicated their lives to serve God, verses 26 to 28, they're able to enjoy food and fellowship with God. One of the, the greatest purposes of the priesthood was to offer those sacrifices on behalf of the whole of the people of God such that God's people could enjoy fellowship with him. Now, let me loop back to the very beginning for a minute. We live in a day, in God's kindness, without sacrifice and priests. And that is a glorious freedom that Jesus has won for us. But what often happens as a result? We are often quick to jump to all of the blessings and the freedom that comes in our fellowship with God. We are rightly quick to pray to our Father. Um, Think about that in the Bite Size Truth series at the moment, aren't we? And um, Sam was reminding us last week that we can and should and indeed must pray to God anywhere about anything because we can pray to him all the time. And all of those things are wonderfully true. But isn't there a danger that as we enjoy not being surrounded by priests and sacrifices and all the blessings that come from fellowship that we forget The fellowship only comes after the sin and the burnt offering. All the freedom we have, all the blessings that come from being united to the Father by the Son with the work of the Spirit drawing us nearer and nearer into the blessings of being a Christian who's united to Christ, all of those things come because Jesus has paid the sin offering. He was the one who gave all of his life in utterly perfect devotion when none of us ever could so that we can know fellowship with God. Now that can be really hard to remember when we're not surrounded by priests and sacrifices all the time. I get that. I was thinking this week how hard it is um, to begin to teach kids these days about the value of money. Um, I mean, in one sense, it's always been hard, hasn't it? But when I was a lad, um, if you wanted to buy something, you had to save for it. And if you wanted to save for it, it meant putting physical pennies safe somewhere such that once you'd got all of the pennies you needed, you physically took those pennies to the shop, handed them over, and got what you wanted. Nowadays, you just turn NFC on and go, bloop. (laughs) And it's a bit harder to instill in our kids the value of money because it's just another beep. Well, I wonder whether 
actually there's a similar parallel to us finding it harder to remember the cost of our salvation. Because we just jump. Quite rightly, and in one, in one way, we are encouraged to see all of the blessings of being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see afresh how precious a gift the Lord's Supper is. That's where we're reminded of the cost of our salvation. That's where we have that line in the sun moment in the week where we remember that Jesus is our sin offering. And it has been paid. So can I lovingly encourage you, if you're a part of our church family, if you're a member in our church, to see how important it is to prioritize coming to every Lord's Day meeting, but especially to our Lord's Supper services. They're God's gift for us that we would remember the cost that he has paid for us to be forgiven and enjoy the fellowship that we have. Time's moving on. I want to look at two final sections if we can. They're going to be much briefer. Um, If you look at all of the detail that we have seen over the last two weeks, chapter 28, chapter 29, all of the enormity of everything that's going on with the priests. Think about all the public attention they've had. Think about all the solemnity of this consecration. Think about all of the splendor of their garments. It would be very easy not just to have a high view of the priests. Quite tempting to idolize the priests, wouldn't it? And I wonder whether that's why God's given us this brief description of their day job in verses 38 to 41. It follows all of the splendor of this grand ceremony of their consecration with a description of what it is to serve in practice. And what we see, thirdly, is a very repetitive routine. Each and every day, they had to offer two year-old lambs. Now, there'd be other responsibilities that would come in time. But this was the, ba- the bedrock. This is the foundation <clears throat> for the whole of the Jewish sacrificial system. One lamb, twice a day. Now, on the one hand, that clearly reminds us of the seriousness of sin that continually needs to be atoned for. But on the other hand, after everything that we've been through in the last two chapters, it's very small and very ordinary, isn't it? Two lamps, one in the morning, one in the evening. It's very quickly going to lose the interest of the assembly. It's very quickly going to become the kind of thing that Aaron and his sons would be able to do with their eyes closed because it's, it's relatively easy. It becomes routine. But I wonder whether that's exactly God's point. After all of the excitement and all of the importance of underscoring what is being inaugurated here with this priesthood that will be the bedrock for everything in the whole of the Israelites' communion with God and give us a foreshadowing of everything Jesus is going to do, what follows is a life of ordinary, routine ministry. And that's our Christian life, isn't it? After the great wonder of coming to faith and being baptized, there will be some high points, as it were, in your Christian life. God willing, God will use you to bring other people to come to faith. You might 
look for and settle in a new church. And that's a wonderfully exciting thing. You might get involved in new ministries. You may even be appointed to a vocational ministry. There's lots of things that may well happen in the future. And they're great points along the way. But actually, most of the time, the Christian life is very ordinary. And we live in a world where ordinary is considered boring. If you take your cues from our society, the thing that you look for in life is the next adventure. It's the next new thing. It's the next big thing. You bring that attitude into the Christian life, what happens is you breed unrealistic expectations of the church. You breed resentment in your Christian life that there isn't this great adventure, that there's not another great event happening. But I think the whole point of this reminder of what ministry looks like for the priest is to show us that the life of a believer has a goodness in its ordinariness. Most of our lives look just like the priest's long-term ministry. It's faithful and steady. And that is a good gift from God. And yet, whilst all of that is true, what is so lovely and encouraging is what God closes this chapter with in verses 42 to 46. The blessing of service that the priests are going to bring is the very presence of God. Through his newly appointed priests and all of these daily sacrifices, God is going to meet with his people, which was the very goal of the Exodus. Look at the four blessings that the Jews received through this sacrificial system. Verse 42, God promises to speak to his people. We get so used to that in our kind of cultures, in our churches. If you've been brought up in a family that has read God's word to you every single day, you get used to the fact that God's speaking. That is not something that these people expected would happen. This is an enormous blessing that the God who has spoken the universe into existence is promising to speak to you as his people. Verse 43. It's not just the priesthood, but the place where God meets them is going to be consecrated by God's glory. You look back at all the detail of verse 29, all of the blood, all of the sacrifices, none of those things ultimately are what make people holy. God makes people holy. That's the blessing that he is promising here. And verse 45, he promises to dwell with his people and be their God. The limitless, everywhere present God promises that in a very particular way, he will be with his people. And verse 46, doing so in a way that will remind them that he has saved them. Now, they're all the blessings that flow from an old covenant sacrificial system. How much bigger are the blessings that we have in the new covenant system? They had the promise of God to speak to them. We have the fullness of everything God ever intends to say to men and women. And more than that, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Think about the promise of dwelling with them. Well, God has promised to us that when believers gather together, he will be present with us in a particular way. And not just, though particularly, when we gather together as God's people. God has given us his Holy Spirit 
to live within us in all of the things that you were going to do during the course of this week. Have those blessings sunk into your heart. Do you know, do you know what a joy it is to be a Christian? None of those things are things any of us deserve in ourselves. They are all the blessing of God because he has dealt with our sin. He's called us to a life of devotion. And he now blesses us with all that comes in his dwelling with us. That's what John Payton was sustained by the most. Many of you will know um, the words of Jesus' great commission by heart. And if you know it in a slightly older translation, you know that it reads, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In all the persecution that Peyton experienced, that was the single most precious promise to him that sustained him throughout his life. And this is why. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. This isn't some glib Christian statement about, hey, Jesus loves me, this is great. This is without Jesus, I'm undone. His words... Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, became to me so real that it wouldn't have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. In Jesus, I feel invulnerable and immortal so long as I was doing his work. And I can truly say, that these were the moments when I felt my Savior to be most truly and sensibly present, inspiring and empowering me. I want to know Jesus like that. I want to know that whatever he calls me to do in my life, I am so gripped that Jesus would go outside the camp for me to deal with my sin that I give my whole life to him. And however testing that journey may be, I know Jesus has promised, lo, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Nothing will sustain us in ministry beyond being gripped by the presence of God who has dealt with our sin and promises to be with us.